you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. Dave McBride, thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our show, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right, let's begin today's podcast. We get towards the end of the season here, so let's begin with your questions and comments from this week. And we'll start off with Warren, who writes, Just listen to your cobblestone podcast, where you felt that they were saying the road on Oak Island was built by the Romans. No, that's not what was said at all. They said that the original technology in Portugal was built by the Romans, but the Portuguese descendants carried on the concept. The idea being that if the Portuguese did, in fact, go to Oak Island, they built a road using this once Roman, now Portuguese method. Looking at two road designs, they do indeed look similar to me, but what do I know? Not a road expert. Has anyone actually confirmed where the rocks in Oak Island, uh, where the Oak Island Swamp Road are from? The boulderless beach, question mark. Warren, great email. Let me start with saying, um, with that last part there about the boulderless beach, okay? Uh, as far as I know, they have not confirmed or have ever really talked much about on air, or, you know, about where the rocks and the swamp road feature might have originated from, if not the swamp. And certainly there's been no talk about the boulderless beach specifically. That's one of those things that certainly would have piqued my interest for sure. Um, what I will say, though, is the boulders that we're talking about that are, how do I put this, supposedly missing from the boulderless beach are huge. They're gigantic boulders. And these are the same kind of gigantic boulders found all over the rest of the island shoreline. The boulderless beach really is a fascinating feature of Oak Island. But like I said, the boulders we're talking about are these huge ones, not the kind of smaller cobblestone type rocks that seem to make up you know, much of the swamp road. Now, I don't know if that means anything at all, meaning I'm not sure if that means these rocks in the road are or are not from the beach. But I just kind of wanted to point that out. Now, as far as your comments about the Roman road and my comments from last week, uh, I understand exactly what you're saying. Please believe me. I understand what they're, what the showrunners and what the team are trying to say here. Uh, so that leads me to believe that maybe I'm phrasing my um, my complaints a little a little wrong here. Um, let me say it like this: Why show us a Roman built road at all if we're looking to compare the Swamp Road? with a Portuguese-built road built centuries later after the fall of the Roman Empire in the Roman style. Why not show us an example of that, (laughs) the one the Portuguese built? Show us an example of a road built by the Portuguese in this style, or better yet, because they always seem to throw this name in, built by the Templars. But why show us one built by the Romans? That doesn't seem to apply to what we're looking at here. There must be an example of a later built road, or how else would we know that um, the post-Roman era Portuguese actually built roads of these kinds using this exact technology? We must have an example of that, right? Am I making more sense? What doesn't square with me is showing us an example of a Roman road if you are, in fact, not theorizing any Roman involvement. Because the Romans built these roads all over Europe, everywhere, really. Are the Portuguese the only ones who carried on this method of building roads like this? No, they're not. Um, So how does showing us a Roman-built road make the swamp road Portuguese in origin any more (laughs) than showing us a Roman-built road makes any other country in Europe who built stone roads after the Romans, you know, make it it of that origin? I hope hope I'm clarifying my uh, my issues here. Um, 
And I hope I said that all a little bit clearer for you than I did last week. Warren, great stuff. Thank you so much for the email. Now, with that in mind, it is great to hear once again from a guy I like to call our man in Portugal, who must be very excited about these recent episodes. Uh, Here is our friend Lionel who writes, Hi, Dave. So this season's shows with the guys in Portugal caught me traveling. I've been able to follow the show, but with little opportunity to comment with insights here. But since you were asking for someone to help with Portuguese language sites for double-checking Fanta Arcada, Arcada, how could I miss that? Okay, so regarding pronouncing the names, honestly, I don't think it matters. You got Tumar right. Uh, yes, the guy's name is George in Portuguese, so J-O-R-G-E sounds like George as opposed to Jorge. Uh, any word with N-H uh, reads like the French or Italian G-N. Um, Onto what I can provide while traveling and without access to my books with authoritative info, Fanta Arcada is a very early Templar site. Is an, is a that fact that it is a very early Templar site is a well known fact. The county government website for this civil parish describes its history, similar to what the show said, and referring to the 1144 contract between the master of the Order of the Temple and the Bishop of Porto. And he put that. Uh, website there for me. I can post it if you want, but I don't think it's much use unless you read Portuguese, but I'll put it up there. Um, More useful is perhaps explaining your puzzlement on the point of the Roman road. Here it goes. The Roman rule broke down. The road building tried to mimic it, but resources, knowledge, etc. were lost or unavailable, and you can actually see this live on the ground. The first part of the road was Roman built. You can see several aspects like the central line of the the guiding stones in the middle. The last part was medieval, the same road initiated in Roman times, then completed during the Middle Ages. You'll see that not only does it look rougher, but details like the central line of guide stones is missing. There are other aspects, but this is the point they want to make, how the medieval road building techniques match. Lee, now I'm going to stop here. If that's the point they're trying to make, they did a terrible job with that because you explained that in those four sentences better than they did in about four hours worth of television. (laughs) Anyway, I continue. I don't see this as any particular relevance uh, because similar road building techniques existed in other parts of the Roman Empire, but certainly makes for good TV. Bonus, the Mason's Marks. They are everywhere. It was a way for Masons to prove their contributions to the work and get paid for it. Plenty to find around the country. Even in my hometown, 1,000 inhabitants, 12,000 people, country, uh, county, the medieval single arch bridge over the seasonal river has dozens of them. So I'm not too surprised that they found that mark. With enough time, probably they might find them all. Inte, I guess that's a salutation in in Portuguese, Lionel. Um, First of all, thank you, Lionel. Folks, I say this a lot, but it bears repeating again here. I cannot express to you enough the absolute amazement and really gratitude I feel for the people who listen to this show and write in. I just cannot imagine that there is a podcast out there with a more brilliant and eloquent group of listeners than this one who knows the subject better than this one. I mean, listeners, most of you know this subject better than the host does. (laughs) Let's let's be honest, certainly this one. And Lionel, yours is just the latest example. This great stuff, amazing info. He even followed up later with with another email with a photo of it, and it said, this is a uh, photo of a cobblestone road today in Cape Verde, a former Portuguese settlement and then colony, which makes a nice link to today. Roman road in the show, medieval Portuguese path leading off from the road and across seas until time until present day. And I'm going to put that picture for you guys down on our Facebook page. Thank you so much, Lionel, for sending that. Um, I don't really have a lot 
to add to what you wrote. This is all great information, wonderfully spelled out for us. But and you answered a few of my questions, and I and I thank can't thank you enough for that, obviously. But uh, let me just add this: that despite your uh, generous assistance there, my friend, I can assure you that I will continue to uh, destroy Portuguese pronunciations for the foreseeable future. Uh, again, thank you for writing, my friend. And uh, please, when you get back from your travels, I hope we get to hear more from you on all this stuff. Uh, safe journeys, and we will talk soon. All right, the next email does not have a name attached to it. Now, I usually don't read emails without names on the podcast, but I am making an exception with this one because the information it brings up here is really pertinent to the recent episodes of the show. If uh, you're listening and you uh, wrote this one, please let me know who you are so I can properly credit you for uh, such a good email. Anyway, here it goes. Hi, David. In in talking with the Freemasons and the bobble and the vest, you miss the obvious. Now, he's saying bobble. We're using brooch. I'm going to substitute that word in for the rest of his email just so you can follow better what we're saying here. If indeed this brooch was part of a Grand Mason vest, the Freemasons would do pretty much anything to get it back. It would be of significant value to them. These Vesta are highly secret and highly treasured in their rituals. They come with a very long history. I I strongly suggest that a concession the Masons had to make in order to get it back was to send a 32nd degree Mason to expound upon some fantasy that promotes the narrative of the production company, some blurb about the Ark of the Covenant. In return, the Masons get their artifact back. If we never see the brooch again, if it just disappears, fades into the background, this fits the argument. I can hardly accept that the production company and their lawyers would never even consider identifying this person as a 32nd degree Mason if he were not, and they would have done their due diligence in the background. The production companies already had serious legal complications from their previous fiasco way back in the beginning with the fraudulent Indiana Jones-style treasure hunter who was, if I recall correctly, convicted of fraud or some such thing. And subsequently, all mention of his name was removed from all the credits, even the previous archived editions. Will this item become, quote, the thing that is never talked about again? Uh, Thank you so much to whoever wrote that in. Again, great information. Um, I wouldn't say I missed the obvious (laughs) because nothing you said about the Mason stuff there for me is obvious at all. I'm not a Freemason. Uh, I have no interest in the history of Freemasonry. I know very, very little about them outside of the small bits that you learn from following, you know, Oak Island, the mystery of Oak Island and what people, um, you know, the association people make with Freemasonry. Um, so I, I, I didn't I, I missed it because I just don't know things like that. Uh it is certainly one aspect of the Oak Island theorization process that I do fail miserably at. That and geology are <laughs> the two things that I just have admitted it's going to be part of this whole thing that I'm not going to know. Um, anyway, so thank you for that information. Um, you know, once again, the listeners swoop in, even anonymous ones, and cure me of my ignorance. And I hope that, uh, you know, throw something out there as far as the Mason connection and this brooch. And I think it was Gilbert Hedden or no, no, it wasn't Gilbert Hedden. It was M.R. Chapel, right? Who was the uh, the big Mason, big shot Mason there. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Let's hear now from Jeff who writes, Dave, something you said on your podcast um, struck home for me. He's talking about last week's podcast. I've been a loyal viewer of The Curse of Oak Island since the very beginning. Prior to the show, I was very much aware of of Oak Island and the basics of the story. Being a fan of paranormal topics, conspiracy theories, and alternative history, I was willing to be optimistic that there had to be something to the whole Oak Island mystery. 
During the COVID pandemic, I had the opportunity to read some books I always wanted to get to, specifically Darcy O'Connor's Secret Treasure of Oak Island, The Amazing True Stories of a Treasure of a Centuries-Old Treasure Hunt, and Randall Sullivan's The Curse of Oak Island, The Story of the World's Largest Treasure Hunt. These books cover a lot of the same ground, in particular the history and timeline of all searcher activity. While I was getting through these books, two thoughts kept coming to me. One, there's not a single solid piece of evidence that there was ever any treasure on Oak Island. And two, not a single piece of treasure that we know of has ever been found on Oak Island. These thoughts have been quietly percolating in my brain all through season nine. And I think I finally reached the point where I can say it out loud. I don't think there is a treasure, i.e. gold, on Oak Island, and I'm not sure there ever was. In the event there was some kind of treasure, it is long gone. Point one, when McGinnis and friends originally started their search, the, pre- the prevailing rumor of the day was that Captain Kidd had buried treasure on the island. If I'm not mistaken, there are even some old maps that labeled the island as Captain Kidd's. It makes sense that McGinnis and some early searchers would go on, on rumor alone. But why would subsequent searcher groups after searcher group take up the torch and keep going and spend progressively more time and money doing it? There's no evidence of treasure. In the two aforementioned books, it's almost mind-boggling to read about 200 years worth of searcher groups putting together plans, raising money, and failing time after time. Unfortunately, the Laginas are just the latest in a long line of failed searchers. I don't want them to fail. I want them to haul piles of gold or the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant out of the money pit and proudly show to the world. I'm afraid it just isn't going to happen. Point two, in all the searcher activity over 200 plus years, no treasure has been found. If I'm not mistaken, I believe the Truro Company in 1849 allegedly found pieces of gold chain. I don't think this has ever been validated or substantiated, so it doesn't count. Have interesting and unique things been found on the island? Of course, that's pretty much the only thing that keeps us all watching. But back to my point, no treasure has ever been found. I think there's a small chance that if there was a treasure, it was quietly removed. If I were a searcher and found something, I would try to move as quickly as possible to get out before anyone, including the local authorities, excuse me, found out. Let me just break for a second. I think you guys can probably hear from my voice. I'm fighting off a cold again. Uh, I have a seven-year-old, so this is uh, ob- you know uh, <laughs> a constant here in the house. Anyway, so forgive my uh, my swallowings and all that kind of terrible noise. I hope I didn't just make you uh, focus on it. I'll do my best to edit as much of it out as I can. But anyway, the email continues. Uh, this current season of The Curse of Oak Island is easily the worst I know you covered this topic in the last several podcasts, so I don't need to beat it to death, but the show is getting hard to watch. As you mentioned in your last podcast, the real story of Oak Island is all the failed search attempts. I feel late to the game in accepting this, but the current season is really driving it home for me. This email has been therapeutic, and I thank you for reading it on the podcast, should you choose to. I'm going to watch to I'm going to continue to watch the show and listen to your podcast, which I love. Thank you, sir. But now I have to begrudgingly agree with my family when they make fun of me for my weekly ritual of claiming the TV for Oak Island Night. Keep the awesome pod keep up the awesome podcast, Jeff. And P.S. Another fantastic book I read was Republic of Pirates by Colin Woodward. Uh, it's about the golden age of of uh, Caribbean piracy. The interesting thing about this book is that it was researched from original sources, letters, court proceedings, so there isn't any speculation or guessing. It paints a slightly different picture, a more interesting picture of pirates. I'm sure a lot of fans of the show would dig it. Yes, it is a great book, and I do have it on my shelf back there. Jeff, my friend, again, um, 
I'm not sure what else I can add to what you're saying here. Um, your your opinion is noted, and and you are sh- it is shared by many people. And you and I also share in the same sort of family ridicule thing, right? I said this several times. But my wife, once a tried and true Oak, Curse of Oak Island fan, now not only doesn't watch the show at all, but um, I also get this sort of handful of snarky little comments each time she passes through the living room on a Tuesday night. Uh, she made one this week, too, which I'll get to later. There are two things that got me hooked on Oak Island from the very beginning. One is the possibilities. I've always loved just how many culprits have been theorized over the years, from Captain Kidd to the Templars, uh, you know, to Francis Bacon, even George Washington, and so on. But the other thing is, as you mentioned, the history of the dig. But the problem with really getting into that stuff, which is fascinating and such an amazing look into the psyche of treasure hunters, right? But the, the problem that you get into there is you quickly lose not only your positivity towards the idea of anything being found, But also you begin to realize that this has been going on for centuries, centuries. At what point do we all start to wonder if this isn't just a fool's errand, a lost cause, right? It's hard not to think that way, right, Jeff? But in my mind, there have been just enough compelling finds over the years to keep me hooked, despite the decades in between those finds. Anyway, hang in there, my friend, and thank you for writing. That's all for this week's emails. If you have any comments or questions for me that you would like discussed on a future show, just email them to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Okay, it's time now to discuss Season 9, Episode 22 of The Curse of Oak Island called On the Road. And what we learned at the end of this week was that this is the penultimate episode of Season 9, meaning next week is the finale. Now, once again, like in the last couple episodes, we did not see much of the money pit here in this show. All we see is sort of a few shots of a very cold-looking Terry Matheson and and whoever is staring there, st- standing there with him, staring up at the top of the can that we saw started a couple weeks ago, B4C. This was the surprise fifth caisson of the season. There are really only two things worth mentioning here. One is this is the first time in a while that we see the editors really playing with the timeline and not doing a very good job of hiding it, honestly. Um, We've talked about this a lot recently, and it's not something that I ever really worry about, but I get a lot of emails and questions about this stuff. Um, For example, what I mean is how the show sort of uses footage from what is, you know, clearly just from their dress and the the weather around them, clearly summer, but yet they're putting it in an episode where they tell us it's sort of the end of the fall, that kind of thing. Um, you know, they they do it to sort of fill in areas of work and times of the season, I suppose, where there isn't a lot of variety. Um, and that kind of gets to people, people kind of point that out. In this episode, we see B4C, this caisson, during what is obviously the early phases, and we're seeing the early phases for the second straight week Specifically, we're hearing it is at 57 feet down, and we're told it'll take like a week to get even further. So according to the timeline presented to us, it must actually take a couple of weeks to get to 57 feet down, even though, you know... um, you know, they try to present each episode as a snapshot of a week of work on an island, yet we've seen other caissons start and end inside of just one episode. So you can see for sure that the editors are not only uh, not sticking with the timeline, but they're only sticking to that timeline concept when it suits their purposes. Again, I have no issue with this, but I know a lot of viewers do, so I thought it was worth mentioning because they really kind of stuck it out at us there. Um, 
it's just not a big deal to me. Anyway, the second thing worth mentioning about the money pit might be a little bit bigger deal in the long run. And that is that we now know that they're clearly saving the end of this case on for the season finale. I wonder if there's a reason for that, right? We'll just have to wait and see what that reason might be. Let's take another quick stop. Um, this time over at Lot 15, which is on the north side of the island, sort of in between the swamp and the money pit, but on the northern shore. They're here looking for a possible continuation of the swamp's uh, stone road slash wharf feature, whatever they're calling it this week. Uh, Marty Lagina is at the wheel of a little digger, and he says that he has, quote, obtained permission from the authorities to dig here. This coming from the guy who said for weeks that those very same authorities wouldn't let him dig anywhere on the island besides the money pit. Anyway, I digress. Uh, they dig, and just under the surface, they find a collection of rocks, which they think is a lot like the road uh, they are looking for. Archaeologist Laird Niven comes in, um, you know, and he kind of gets down into the rocks here. And he makes a point of calling it, quote, unquote, a feature, which I found interesting because that he didn't use the word road because he was asked, does this look like a road? Uh, and he went out of his way <laughs> not to say road, but to say feature instead. I think all that does is tell us that, um, you know, we're not getting a clear picture of what Laird thought at the time, but also that it's very early in the process of figuring out what this might be. Now, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, the narrator then equates this Roman road the guys looked at last week to what we're seeing here in Port, you know, the Roman road in Portugal to what we're seeing here. And then he also somehow shoehorns in the Knights Templar. Once again, that road we saw last week in Portugal is not Templar. It's not even Portuguese. It's Roman. And I don't understand why we just can't call it that. So most of the episode took place in Portugal as Rick and Alex Lagina, along with Doug Kroll and Peter Fernetti, continue their tour of Templar and also Roman sites uh, throughout the country. Two little side notes I want to mention. First, my wife, who I said earlier is getting snarky about the show, <laughs> asked me, why are Alex and Peter there saying, you know, what purpose do these guys serve in here? To which I answered, quite honestly, vacation. I mean, look how beautiful this place is. My goodness. The other thing I was wondering is, why are all these field trips these guys take only ever Templar-related? Hmm. Anyway, let's get into it. Uh, the Portugal part of the episode kicks off with Rick and Doug on a video call to the war room with the rest of the team back in Nova Scotia. Rick and Doug are talking about the Roman road they saw last week, and they're comparing it to the Swamp Road. And Doug says in this scene, quote, unlike other areas or other countries here in Portugal, they, they seem to have embraced that design, and they carried that forward through the century. They kept building roads in this manner. First, let me just say that the first part of that statement, unlike any other, unlike other countries and areas, is patently false. You can find examples of Roman-built roads from the Middle East all the way to Great Britain. And yes, those countries continued the same idea for centuries, and you can find medieval-built roads that look quite the same, uh, that come from after the Roman Empire fell in all of those places. But even if that were in fact the case, which it isn't, again, I ask, then why not show us an actual road built in this style by the Templars or the Portuguese during these later centuries? Show us the actual thing you're comparing it to, uh, not a Roman-built road, because you're not comparing it to that. Anyway, I think I've beaten the heck out of this point. Uh, 
<laughs> so let's move on to uh, something less um, repetitive. Guys are joined again by Templar historians Corian Maul and Zhao Fiendero, uh, this time in the city of Tumar at the incredible Templar castle found there. I mean, what a place, really. Corian, why didn't you bring me on this trip? Anyway, much of what you see here was uh, built by the Templars in the 12th century. The fortress was key uh, in their history in beating back the invasion of uh, Portugal by the uh, north from North Africa, right from the Berber kings, and and then later played a critical role in keeping the Moors from taking much of Portugal. Portugal was sort of uh, in a state of war during those centuries with North African uh, kingdoms, for sure. I think it became essentially the seat of the Knights Templar Order in the 13th century, um, you know, and became sort of the the center of it all. I mean, listen, if you were ever looking to go on sort of a Templar-themed vacation, uh, you know, throughout Europe, start and end your trip here in Tumar. It is truly a spectacular Templar city. Anyway, the guys are here to check out the breathtaking Convento de Cristo, a church inside the castle which was the religious center of the Templars in Tumar. Uh, the convent took decades to build, and I love when Rick says that the convento is, quote, a testament that nothing was beyond them. And he is absolutely correct. There's one thing I know for sure. The Templars were warriors um, and some of the absolute best warriors and fighters of their era, but they were also some of the best engineers, bankers, builders, and on and on and on. If you ever find yourself thinking, that the workings you think have took place on Oak Island were just too much for just a group of knights to build. Think again. <laughs> it is child's play compared to what they did in Europe and all you know throughout the centuries of their uh, what we would call their era. Corian shows the team a water drainage system built under the castle and also these really cool plaques with this kind of bizarre hand symbol that marks where the drain was below the floor. The guys start comparing it to the finger drains in Smith's Cove, even though we never get a chance to see these actual drains under the ground for whatever reason. We never actually see them there, so it's hard to compare them. Uh, Steve on the Patreon commented, quote, on the show, they never really proved the finger drains while excavating Smith's Cove. In fact, the ones they showed on air appeared, if they were not, if they were really not natural, to be triangular, if I recall. End quote. Steve, absolutely correct on both points. The rectangular box drain Rick is talking about comes from a description written by the Truro Company of what they found during the initial excavation of Smith's Cove back in like 1850. If you're interested, here is what it says. Uh, quote, after removing the rocks nearest the low water, it was found that the clay, which the sand and gravel originally formed the beach, had been dug out and removed and replaced by beach rocks. Resting on the bottom of this excavation were five well-constructed drains formed by laying parallel lines of rocks about eight inches apart and covering the same with the flat stones. These drains at the starting point were a considerable distance apart but converged towards a common center at the back of the excavation. Uh, as far as I know, no one else since the Truro Company guys have seen these drains. No one photographed them or anything. And as you described there, Steve, when the Laginas did their own excavation a few seasons back, what they found looked nothing like what Rick is describing here. It's another one of those things, much like the 90-foot stone, where we have to rely on the word of someone who was using these very same words to try and justify money spent on the treasure hunt and raise even more money to continue said treasure hunt. I'm not saying Rick's description is not true, 
I'm just saying we don't really know that for sure that this is what it looks like. I'm, Rick is just repeating what the Truro company, you know, reported. Corian also shows them another symbol on the wall of the castle. This one with the uh, four was a cross with four dots surrounding it. And he equates this to a symbol found on the HO stone. And it does look like that same symbol for sure. But as I told you guys last week, and if you want to get sort of caught up in the HO stone, listen to last week's podcast. I'm not going to recede all, uh, repeat all that. The HO stone is most likely modern, which is why you almost never hear it mentioned as one of the great mysterious finds of Oak Island. I mean, they actually found an ancient etched stone uh, with Templar-looking symbols on it. It would be mentioned in every <laughs> in every episode, along with the ninety-foot stone or the lead cross, right? I mean, it just would be, and it's not, and this is the reason why. Later, the group heads to Lisbon to the military museum found there. They're meeting with two guys who are both historians and obviously former Portuguese military. They show them the round shot that Gary found a few episodes back to see if the possible ammunition from a Portuguese naval deck, if that's what it is, uh, from a naval deck gun. They start talking about these things being made in Portugal and specifically the Azores. And it's here where JC1166 on the Patreon asked, quote, anyone else dubious of the museum officials being so certain that stone was from the Azores, end quote. My friend, I'm not sure we can say that. I'm not sure we can be sure that's really what they said. I think this scene was really chopped up to make it look that way. So I'm I'm willing to give the historians the benefit of the doubt here. I'm also <laughs> sure they were talking in general in sort of generalities and because as we're about to learn, they weren't even looking at the genuine artifact found on Oak Island. They were looking at something completely different. Let me explain. The historians and this you might guys might have missed this. The historians take them to a part of the museum that has all sorts of cannons. I mean, this place looks just amazing, right? And they show the team, in specific, a 15th to 16th century era four caliber deck gun that might be the perfect match for this for this ball, this deck shot. Uh, Alex leans down to examine this gun, and he wants to see if the barrel matches, and he's going to do this by placing the actual shot that he's holding, that they're holding, into the front of the barrel and see if it fits. So Doug pulls... This, the round shot out of a small bag. And then he hands it to Alex to, to do this by saying, quote, we have one of the replicas here. So wait a second. That isn't the actual piece found on Oak Island we're seeing? Someone made a copy? Or as Doug says, a replica? I mean, really? So as you can see, the historians would, would never have been able to make an honest determination of its origins because they weren't even shown the actual piece to examine. We're just made to think they were, right? It's very strange. I honestly don't know what to make of all of that. Uh, what followed after this was a lot of conjecture and a lot of leaping to conclusions that honestly didn't mean much to me, and maybe my head's still spinning over the idea that they're making these conclusions based on a replica. Um, you know, I, I'm sure these guys and these know that these guns were not exclusively Portuguese, and again, we don't actually see anything found in Oak Island matching up here. But this was a really cool scene with some great history. And maybe if this piece in, you know, was placed in context with other artifacts, then at some point it might mean something a little more interesting down the road. Now, the next scene we see is from a town called Sintra, which is over on the Atlantic coast uh, near a huge harbor called the Sea of Straw. I love that name. I mean, we are talking about a town... Um, with a history here 
that includes, God, everyone from the Phoenicians uh, to the Vikings to the Romans and just about everyone in between. But the guys are not here to look at something ancient. Instead, they're here to look at something called Quinta de Regalera. I'm telling you, Leonel, I can't say this stuff. It's a 20th century built mansion uh, built by somebody named Antonio Augusta Carvalho Montero who was obviously ridiculously rich and also apparently a devoted Freemason who filled his lush estate with all sorts of things inspired by, you know, the Freemasons, the Knights Templar, the Rosicrucians, and so on and so on. I mean, to the point where it all, <laughs> I got to tell you, it all seems kind of strange, really. I don't know. It just, just seemed kind of strange. <laughs> Corian takes the guys to see something called the Initiation Well, uh, this is this, well, how do you describe it? Um, this elaborate hole in the ground with stairs around the outside of it leading down into the earth. If there was ever a good example of someone having way too much money to spend, this is probably one of the best examples you can come up with. It was apparently used for some sort of Masonic ritual, which the team describes here. I'm not going to get into again because as I always tell you, I don't know much about this kind of stuff and it doesn't really interest me. But um, So I don't really have a lot to add here on the ritual part of it. The important thing for the guys, though, is that this well is 13 feet across and has nine levels of stairs descending into the earth, both matching the original description of the money pit from over 200 years ago. Here there is also some talk about the Restall's theory that perhaps a spiral path of some kind exists along the outside of the original money pit shaft, prompting our friend Ginger to write during the Patreon discussion, quote, I think the well confirms my belief that you walk in to get the treasure, the money pit going straight down from the top is just not even reasonable, end quote. Ginger, you're right about that, and uh, and I think that's, you know, that might be true. But unfortunately, um, what the Restalls had here was just a theory, uh, and there was really no evidence in subsequent years ever found to back that theory up, unfortunately. Um, the guys descend down to the bottom of the stairs, and upon looking up, they notice it also has a limb of an oak tree extending over the top of it. Uh, once again, prompting comparisons to the original money pit. What I gather here is that what we're trying to say is that perhaps Antonio Augusta Carvalho Montero had some pretty extensive knowledge of the original money pit plans and made this well to match it for whatever reason. Now, I don't know why he would do that, and I don't know if that makes any sense. It kind of seems like a stretch to me, but I love this stuff. It is so fascinating. And I just want to end with this. Even though I do tend to poke holes in the quote-unquote evidence found in things like this, these things just, I absolutely love this stuff. And they, you know, they do tend to pile up. Uh, you have to have a little bit of confirmation bias in your head to sort of make them pile up to fit with Oak Island. Um, but they do pile up and they do get pretty fascinating. Don't get me wrong. I am no, by no means convinced at this point that we have found anything that directly connects the Templar's in Portugal to Oak Island. At least not yet. But boy, I love when they try. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Dig in Oak Island podcast. Next week is the final episode of the season. Then we'll get to some wrap-up stuff, and then we'll take a little break before we uh, start our off-season shows um, I'm still kind of working on plans for what we're doing this off season. I know I'm going to focus a lot on the Patreon. So if you're interested in, uh, 
and that kind of stuff, um, go to patreon.com slash digging Oak Island to learn more, especially if you think the show is worth $5 a month to you, you can help out the show by going over there. Um, don't forget some shameless plugs um, on the air. DJing Wednesday afternoons, 2 to 5 p.m. WDVR-FM. Uh, do a show called the Bourbon Street Bistro from 2 to 4 where we play the music of New Orleans. And then from 4 to 5 hosting a show called Island Vibes where I play music with a kind of a tropical feel to it. You can listen by going to WDVRFM.org or uh, if you're in... Uh, Eastern Pennsylvania or Western New Jersey, you can hit 89.7 FM or 90.5 FM in PA. Um, also, if you'd like to help out the show beside, in another way besides the Patreon, you could do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thanks to everybody who's done that already. I really do appreciate it. Uh, don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Diggin' Oak Island. And if you have any comments or questions that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email diggingoakisland at gmail.com just remember if you send me an email or a direct message on social media I may just answer it here on the podcast so if you don't want your message read please make a note of that for me so until we speak again I'm Dave McBride thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island